0: Greetings, most excellent Theophilus, grace and peace to you from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. States are taking back mask mandates, and other people are losing their minds. I'd like you to do a little experiment for the good of your understanding. I would like you to look up the CDC uh, cases versus deaths of COVID-19 in your particular region. You can be as as broad, as, as encompassing, or as particular to yourself as possible. Just do the math to figure out what the mortality rate for your region is. If you, unlike me, can find what the buck standard uh, mortality rate is, they are suggesting COVID-19 has, I want you to compare that number to it and see if they add up. Let's follow the science, shall we? In my particular neck of the woods, that is a 0.1% chance. Actually, let me recalculate that to be certain. Yes, currently for Polk County, the per- the mortality rate sits at 0.014299. More numbers, more numbers, more numbers, because math. Now, let's try taking this... Globally, 116 million cases are currently reported, total, with 2.57 deaths. Now that calculation gives a mortality rate of about two... per... well, over two percent okay, hmm. <laughs> this is the problem, is I'm trying to say numbers... But I'm not good at saying complicated number comp- uh, situations like this. Oh, I'm realizing Theophilus. I- okay, I'm not really sure how contextually we would handle the number in the percentage. The the number I got, to clarify, is 2.2, with a bunch of numbers afterwards. I'm not sure if that would count as 2.2%, or, no, that makes sense. Look, Theophilus, I'm a theologian, not a mathematician. (laughs) My point is, let's, let's take these numbers, and let's see if the math they're giving us lines up with the actual math. Wait a second, no, 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 I completely entered that incorrectly, actually. Okay... Okay, trying to comport the actual information gives a much better... Okay, that was not... I entered that as 257 million rather than 2.57 million. My bad, Theophilus. That actually brings it down to a 0.2% a 2 death rate. 0.02215, etc, etc. Ah, that, that, okay, that really, <laughs> that means that it's actually only about one decimal, one percent higher than for Polk County. Huh. Uh, so no, um, I think with this result, um, I'm frankly not that scared with something that has that low of a mortality rate. Especially when the mortality rate is slightly inflated by false identification of causation of death. Uh, When the symptoms are so broad and the cycling uh, of their testing is so broad, it's probably lower than that in reality, unfortunately. Is there a risk? Yes, but if you are a good and healthy person and don't have pre-existing conditions, uh, you should have a like a very good chance. <laughs> like beyond good. Like uh, this is like trying to roll a nat 1 for my yeah, that was a very niche reference. Um I think that the uh the results bode a lot better. The, the actual math bodes a lot better than what we're being fed. That's my point. Hebrews. Welcome back to our Until It's Done part series on Hebrews and the nature of our new covenant with God. Let's pick up right back where we left off with Hebrews 4, verse 12. Now, I know I read it last time. I want to read it again this time because I think it is a powerful statement. For living is the word of God, and active and sharper than any sword that is two-edged, even penetrating as far as dividing the soul and spirit the joints, and also the marrows, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That word there is Lagos. And not is there a creature hidden before him. All things, however, are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of him who is our... Huh. Interesting. This translates reckoning, but the word is again logos. Of course, logos has a bigger semantic domain than simply meaning word. Continuing on 14, having therefore a high priest great, and having passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, we should hold firmly to our confession. We see now in this verse the very beginning of the teaching of Christ as the high priest, the Archaea. The arche, arch, <laughs> Greek. The Archaea. For not have we a high priest not able to sympathize with our weakness having been tempted however in all things but by this without sin that was 15 now on to 16 we should come therefore with boldness to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and grace may find uh, maybe may find may be found in time of need for help Ah, that word translated for is ice, uh, meaning to or into uh, place of time or purpose. So, a better, a kind of a more flowy reading, given the jank of translating it for, would be uh, so that we may receive mercy and grace may be found in the time, (laughs) in the time of need, uh, or maybe found for help in the time of need, simply move around the last two words. Eh. Again, that's one thing you're going to learn through me reading this directly from an interlinear Theophilus is that translation, we need to give translators a little bit more of a break for how they choose to word things. We clearly do not have the same grammatical mind as the first century affluent of Koine Greek. Hebrews 5, verse 1. For every, yes, I have to switch that gar back to the beginning of the sentence. For every high priest from among men being taken on behalf of men is appointed in things relating to God that we should offer, that he should offer gifts, both uh, both gifts and sacrifices for our sins to exercise forbearance being able with those being ignorant and going astray since he himself is encompassed by weakness and this is and because of this he is obligated just as for the people so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins And not upon himself takes anyone the honor, but rather being called by God, just as also Aaron. So also the Christ, not himself, not not glorifying himself to become a high priest, but the one having said to him, son of me, are you, I today have begotten you. Six, just as also in another place, he says, you are a priest to the age, according to the order of Malak Melchizedek in the Greek, who in the days of the flesh of him prayers, both, both prayers and supplications to the one being able to save him from death. With crying and loud tears, having offered up and having been heard because of reverence. Though being a son, he learned from the things he suffered obedience. And having been perfected, he became to all those obeying him the author of salvation eternal. (laughs) Let's look at that for a second. That is a beautiful little line. Verse 9. Um, and having been perfected, he became to all those obeying him the author of, or simply author of salvation. Eternal. Little interested why it uh, doesn't say elect right there, but uh, <laughs> there's something for my Calvinist friends to chuckle at me for mentioning. <sighs> Reading on, verse 10, Having been designated by God a high priest according to the order of Malach Malchizedek. Melchizedek. Concerning this, much from us... Uh, word, and difficult in interpretation to speak, since sluggish you've become in the hearings. Um <clears throat> that, that's, actually it's a little hard because that was a very complicated sentence in the Greek. <laughs> uh, concerning, let, let me try to put this in more of a coherent way for the mind. Concerning this, there is much from us to say. And which also, it's also difficult in interpretation to speak since sluggish you've become in your hearings. Twelve, even though you ought to be teachers by the time, um, for even though, for even you ought to be teachers by the time, uh, again, you have need of one to teach you what is the, what are the principles uh, of the beginning oracles of God, and you have become uh, in need, you have become having need of milk and not of solid food. For everyone partaking on partaking of milk is inexperienced uh, in. The word of righteousness Um, for an infant he is. By the way, that word for partaking is metacon. (laughs) Keep that in mind from uh, last week's little discussion about words for partake versus share. Uh, This again refers to. from meta and echo, to share or participate, by implication, belong to, to eat. I'd also like to note that milk in the Greek is galactos. <laughs> Verse 14. Mature, however, is the solid food, uh, the ones by constant use the sense, by constant use of the senses, training, uh, wait, what? Uh, by constant use of the training, the senses, having, uh, distinguished both good, uh, wait, ah uh, ooh, ah, the grammar. The ones by constant use, uh, training, having trained the senses for distinguishing both good and evil. There we go. Therefore, having left uh, the beginning of, of Christ's teaching uh, to the maturity, we should go on, not again laying a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith in God. Interesting, Paul there speaks of a Repentance. repentance from dead works interesting i wonder if you could call those works of iniquity and thus see that the bible is teaching repentance from sin (laughs) okay so works of repentance um verse two uh instruction about baptisms uh laying on then of hands um of resurrection, both of the dead and the judgment, eternal. And this we will do if God permits. Sorry, if I didn't mention it now, four verses in, we hit Hebrews chapter 6. For it is impossible uh, to those once having been enlightened, having tasted then the gift heavenly, And partakers, metokaus, having become of the spirit holy. Uh, Now, of course, the gendering of spirit and holy are to pair those two together, uh, both being, I believe, neuter singulars. Uh, Genitive neuter singular, yes. Numatas hagaiyo. Which I believe, if it was trying to say that we were made holy, uh, then it would have the same gendering as uh, referring to those, or us, or the partakers, the metakaus. uh, Which I'd like to note again, denotes uh, sharer, partner, associate, from metico, meaning participant, uh, sharer, by implication, an associate. So what's going on here? Well, these people are in have, are enlightened. They uh, have tasted of the heavenly gift. They have partaken. They are partakers genestata Genestentas. they are partakers having become of the Holy Spirit. So the people going on here have been a part of the Holy Spirit. But see what's going on here because I would think if someone had the Holy Spirit well are they not of God? Is it not the Holy Spirit that conforms us to the image of Christ? But what is said here? It is impossible for those once having been enlightened, having tasted then the gift of heaven, having and and are partakers having become of the Holy Spirit and having tasted the goodness of God's word. That's rhema there. Uh, also the power of the coming age and then having never been saved in the first place and then having no and then having fallen away Parep Parepe Santas from Para and Pipto to fall aside to apostatize them having fallen away, again to restore them to repentance, crucifying in themselves the Son of God and subjecting him to open shame. What's that mean, Paul? I mean, I there's many people who think they've partaken of the Holy Spirit. There's many people who, by all accounts, were probably were in the faith, but then they fell away, but now they're back. So, were they never saved in the first place? Well, no, it says that they fell away. What's going on here, Paul? What, what, are, you, what are you preaching that Luke or Mark is writing down? <laughs> There's my opinion on it. We've already started to hear, and we'll see throughout Hebrews, that there is this constant drumbeat in her, of the oneness, the once and for allness, and that for all is temporal, not personal. It's once for all time sacrifice of Christ, that there is no representation, that there is no rekindling, there is no re sacrifice. The word here for crucifying. Um, Anastarontas, to impede, crucify, again, constructed from ana and staru, which means to re-crucify. So what's going on here is Paul is warning against the temptation to go back to the old ways, the temptation to think in the old ways. Oh, okay, I, I failed, so there must be... No sac- so the sacrifice is invalid, therefore I must re-sacrifice. But you don't re-sacrifice Christ. I understand this passage not to be a universal statement, that those who fall away, it's impossible to renew them to repentance. I understand it in context, it's impossible to renew them to repentance if they think that repentance is a re-sacrifice of Christ. Because that's not the truth of Scripture. That's not the truth of God. That's not the reality of the situation. If I said it's impossible for those who were once pure and young and innocent and virgins, having, having engaged in sexual intercourse to renew themselves to purity by... Becoming again a virgin. Because you can't become again a virgin. Virginity is a one and done situation. Just as Christ's sacrifice is a one and done situation. But they were truly virgins before. (laughs) Um, Just as these people partook of the Holy Spirit. Partook in having become of the Holy Spirit. Technically, that's what the words there seem to point to the concept of. I see this passage teaching that one who is truly saved can indeed fall away. Verse 7. For land having drunk in upon it, uh, having drunk in the rain upon it that comes in often, and producing vegetation useful uh, for the sake of those whom also it is tilled partakes of, uh, uh, ooh, what? of whom for the sake of whom it is also tilled partakes of the blessing from God, bringing forth, however, thorns and thistles w- worthless and a curse near, uh, wait, what is worthless and near to a curse of which the end is unto burning. So that is to say there are those who happily receive the gift of God and there are those who harden themselves. Uh, I would say that would be the parallel there through the uh, metaphoric language. Nine, we are persuaded, however, concerning you, beloved Agapitoi, of better things and things accompanying salvation if even like this we speak this is often the catch 22 that calvinists try to present to me and my theological understanding wait a second but how could paul say we are persuaded however concerning you beloved of better things or simply of better uh stronger more excellent Greater advantage, so of better. Of, and, and that which accompanies salvation. If even like this we speak. I mean, I could be preaching this message with the theology I'm incorp with the theology that I'm gleaning from it, and still say this. Look, look, there's a congregation listening to. To my words in this hypothetical scenario, of course I am persuaded concerning them, the beloved to whom I speak, that there are better things in store for them than falling away, that there are things in store for them that accompany salvation. That is my hope. I can't know the hearts and minds. I don't know the eternality of their choice. I don't know the, the ultimate end of their choices, of the state of every person I'd be speaking to. I am persuaded, however, concerning them, that there will be things accompanying salvation, that there will be better things for them. Because that's the only sign man has of a believer's, of the truth of a believer, is that there are accompaniments to their salvation. We we see this in James 2, where he's like, Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And we see this in Ephesians 2, that because we are saved by grace through faith, we are in Christ, and we were foreordained in Christ to do good works, to be God's workmanship. So of course, I could happily, hopefully preach this message, that those who hear it, I'm persuaded. I'm persuaded that those who lent an ear to my message, that there are better things for them, that there are things for them accompanying salvation. Could I be incorrect? I could be. But of course, even the Calvinist must agree that we don't know who will in the end be saved. And how could we be persuaded? Verse 10, for not unjust is God to forget the work of you and the love that you have shown toward the name of Him, having ministered to the saints and still <clears throat> and still ministering. Eleven, we desire now each of you to the same, this, each of you the same, to show earnestness toward the full assurance of hope. Unto the end, so that not sluggish you may be, imitators, however, of those through faith, of those through faith and patience inheriting the promises. Through faith and patience, they earned, mm, they inherited the promises. 13 4. Abraham, having made his promise uh, God, since by no one he had greater to swear, uh, he swore by himself, saying, If surely blessing, I will bless you, and multiply, I will multiply you. And thus, having waited patiently, he obtained the promise. For men by one greater swear, and of all their disputes, an end for confirmation is the oath. In which more abundantly desiring God to show to the heirs of the promise the interchangeableness of the purpose of him guaranteed by oath, now wait a second, the heirs of the promise, well how did they become heirs of the promise? Well we see just a few verses ago by faith and patience. eighteen so that by two things unchangeable in which it is impossible to lie for God uh, strong uh, for God encouragement a uh, strong encouragement we may have having fled for refuge to take hold uh, of that which is set before us, hope, which, as an anchor, we have of the soul, both sure and unshakable, and entering into that within the veil, where the forerunner for us has entered, Jesus according to the order of Melchizedek a high priest having become to the age (sighs) What a nice passage Contemplating if I should read on or move to a different topic Hmm. Let's read through chapter 7 just to hammer things home For this Melchizedek, uh, king of Salem, priest of God most high, having met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and having blessed him, to whom also a tenth of all uh, apportioned Abraham, first indeed being translated king of righteousness, uh, indeed, uh, in the Hebrew, malek tzadek. Um, that meaning malek, king, tzadek, righteous, or righteousness. Kind of like how Jesus Christ is Yahweh nu <clears throat> Back to the verse, then and also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Yes, Salem, shalom peace. Now, this means not just any sort of peace, not like the armistice, not like Christmas in World War I. This refers to a true, lasting peace, a peace that has no threat of the onslaught of war. Shalom is not a treaty. It is... Something that can only be achieved in a world without sin. But because God is righteous, we can have shalom with God. And we can have the promise of global shalom in the coming age of the new heaven and the new earth. Verse 3. Without father. Without, okay. Okay, let's look at this again. So, the Mormons claim that we are in the order of Melchizedek. So, let's see what it means to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Verse 3. Apator, without father. Ametor, without mother. Without genealogy. toss, without genealogy. Mete arken hemoron, without beginning of days. Mete zoes telos echan. Nor of life having end. Switching around the echan and telos. Um, having end. Afo moyo menos. Having been made like De Tohuyo, however, the son Tau Theo of God. Mene, he remains Hyrius, a priest, ice unto all time, Dianekes. So, what does it mean to be like Melchizedek? Well, Melchizedek, and this is where we have to realize that Christologic, Christologies are not 100%. It is in Christ where Christologies find their fulfillment. So, there is no mention of a father for Melchizedek in the Old Testament. There is no mention of a mother for Melchizedek in the Old Testament. Um, there is no genealogy of Melchizedek. He has neither a beginning of days nor an end of his life, having been made, however, um, the son of God or a son of God. A priest, he remains into all time, because there's no statement of his death. So, what's going on here is is Paul is expanding upon the encounter of Melchizedek. And he's saying Christ is as this. Christ is as to his eternal nature without a biological donor, without a father. He's not begotten. He, he is not born. Uh, as far as his eternality goes, from eternity uh, into eternity, he has existed in father-son relationship with the father. But the Father did not create him, uh, nor was he born of a woman. Spiritually, he is without a genealogy. Um, This just absolutely tears Mormonism apart. Uh, Christ doesn't have a beginning of days, nor an end of them. He lives forever. Um, Indeed, Melchizedek was in this made akin to the Son of God, and Christ is, of course, literally, spiritually, he has existed eternally in father-son relationship. Temporally, he is the Son of God. And as there was no mention of end for Melchizedek's priesthood, so Christ remains a priest forever. LDS Melchizedek priesthood refuted. (laughs) Verse 4. Consider now how great this one to whom even a tenth Abraham gave out of the best spoils of the patriarchs. And those indeed out of the sons of Levi, the priestly office receiving. A commandment they have to take a tenth ...from the people according to the law, that is, from the brothers of them, though having come out of the lo- the loin of Abraham. The one, however, not tracing his ancestry from them has collected a tenth from Abraham, and the one having the promises has blessed. Apart now... Uh, Apart from now, all dispute, the inferior, by the superior, is blessed. And here indeed, tithes dying men receive. In that place, however, it is testified that he lives on. And so a word to speak through Abraham, also Levi, the one tith- the, the tithes receiving, paid the tithe. For still in the loin of his father was he when he met Melchizedek. I'd like to note, if you're crazy enough to try to be following along in anything other than Bible Hub, where I'm reading this from, Um, in my NIV, for some reason, they decided to translate that... Uh... Oh, okay. Not quite the word I remembered them translating it as. It says, still in the body. Uh of his ancestor. I thought I'd heard it uh, somewhere as backbone or something. Um, no, the word is loin. Um, in the Greek, that's os, osfi, osfui, uh, which means loin, hip, um, you know, that region where it actually comes from, unlike the um, Islamic teaching that uh, semen is formed between the backbone and the ribs. I'm I'm dead serious. That's actually kind of a consistent interpretation between the Quran and the Hadith. Uh, They'll dispute that, but I'll let the text speak for itself. Reading on, verse 11. If indeed then perfection by the Levitical priesthood were for the people, uh, upon it... uh, uh, for a uh, were for the people, uh, for upon it had received the law. What still, uh, what need still was there according to the order of Melchizedek for another to arise, uh, a priest, and not according to the order of Aaron to be named? For being changed of the priest, uh, for of the priesthood being changed. Uh, From necessity, also, uh, a change of law takes place. Concerning whom for are said these things, a tribe another uh, belonged to, from which no one has served at the altar. It is evident, uh, uh, for evident, that out of Judah has sprung the Lord of us. As to which a tribe concerning priests, nothing spoke Moses. Spoke nothing, Moses. Or Moses spoke nothing. There's a few ways to play around with that, to anglicize uh, the grammar. 15, and more abundantly yet evident it is, if according to the likeness of Melchizedek arises another priest... A Hyrus Heteros. See, this actually destroys the argument that, um... Uh, Hyrus, uh, would come from the concept of... Oh, no, let me double-check things. Okay, um, I think that... Uh, never mind, I'm not gonna go off half-cocked on this explanation here of, uh, Hy- Hyrus, um... On to verse 16. Who not according to the law of a commandment fleshly uh, has been constituted, but according to the power of a life indestructible. Wow. 17. For it is testified you, a priest to the age, according to the order of Melchizedek. Yeah, their hairus uh, their is being used, uh, quoting Old Testament passage from Septuagint. Let's actually look up what that is in the Hebrew. Um, that is Psalm 110, verse 4. Psalm 10, verse 4. <clears throat> Has sworn Yahweh and will not repent. You... A priest forever. So the word for priest there is Kohen. Uh oh! I was right actually about what I was afraid I was going to go on half cocked about. Kohen. Only a Levite, according to Judaism, can be a Kohen. But the translators of the Septuagint, and indeed Paul in quoting it, say that a Hayurus is a priest the same as a Kohain can be. And even in this, since uh, it says a priest in forever, according to the order of Malik Tzadek, shows that, uh, well, that says that even one in the order of Melchizedek could be a Kohain. So there goes—I don't remember the guy who made that argument—but there goes his argument right out the window. That there was no way the early church could use the concept of hierus, uh, which Old Testament-wise seems to find its root in Kohain. It clearly they didn't understand it to solely refer to a uh, Levitical priest because Christ is not a Levite; he is a Jud he is a Judean. He is a son of the tribe of Judah. Um, yet indeed, he is called a Kohen. Uh, with the Hebraic background, he's called a Hairus in the reality of the language that was uh, recorded. So this indeed means a priest of the highest caliber. So the only, the only proper usage of priest in the New Testament is attributed to Christ. And it's not attributed to ministers in the church not because they could not be considered Kohanes, but because christ is our high priest in that sense okay uh in first peter it is actually um also actually uh the only time that the entire body of christ is referred to as priests first off it's referring let me correct slightly um in doing this it refers to the entire body of the the entire true body of christ and it does refer to us using that root of hieros uh which septuagint wise finds itself translating kohen which is a true uh, true judaic priest so there is no class in the body of Christ of priest. We are all in a royal priesthood. And our ministry in that priesthood is to offer spiritual sacrifices. But that is first Peter. Let us get back to Hebrews. Verse 18. A putting away indeed uh, for a for indeed a putting away there is of the preceding commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law perfected nothing. Introduction, then, of a better hope by which we draw near to God. And to as much as not apart from the oath, those ones truly, uh, for those ones truly without an oath are priests becoming. However, with an oath, through the one saying to him, has sworn the Lord and not will change his mind. You are a ayuros. you are a priest to the age by so much also of a better covenant has become the guarantee, Jesus. And though and indeed, uh, and indeed those many, mm, okay, how do we incorporate this? And those indeed many are becoming, are having become priests uh, because of death, because of uh, death being prevented from continuing um okay <laughs> yeah, the, the Greek is clearly makes sense to the affluent I am not however um mm. twenty four ah uh, because of the abiding of him to the age a permanent priesthood he holds or rather permanently he holds the priesthood if. See, they could have easily, tr- uh, directly translated that much better and more on point. Um, um, uh, the first word, meaning inequivocably, unchangeably, not passing away, untransferable. Um, it could say not passing away. He holds ten being the definite art- article, the priesthood. Uh, or forever holding the priesthood, um, permanently holding the priesthood. You know, I feel like those would be proper permutations of that word uh, into English. Um, continuing on into twenty-five, um, wherefore also to save to the uttermost he is able those drawing near through him to God, always living. To, to intercede for them. So he's able to save to the uttermost, the Panteles, complete, entire, perfect, through all time, from Pas and Telos, full-ended. He is able to save to the full-ended, the full-entire, the full-complete, to the utter. Most, completely. Those who draw near through Christ to God. Uh, Because he is always living to make intercession for them. Not he is always ready to be a sacrifice for them, but that he is to intercede for them, because he's already the sacrifice. That he is interceding. But there's an implicit... Cooperativeness. Uh-oh, now I'm going to be in trouble with my friends. <laughs> there is implicit cooperativeness. Those drawing near, through him, to God. In other words, in other words, <laughs> for those in Christ, there is no condemnation. Because he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near through him to God. Because he intercedes for us. If you have a Christ who does not, by his sacrifice, become able to save to the uttermost those who are in him, who draw near to God through him. If you have a sacrifice of of God that doesn't do that, there is a problem. I'd say there's room for those who uh, turn away from drawing near through him to God. But the Catholic view is simply just to deny what this is teaching, in my opinion. You can go to the Mass a thousand times, accidentally—well, that doesn't make uh, sense—wind up committing a mortal sin just before you die after having gone to Mass— Say on your way home you get into a car wreck and uh, you blaspheme the name of God in a swear as as it happens and you break your neck and you die. You've committed a mortal sin. There is no love of God that will pursue you into the flames of purgatory. There is only a fearful expectation of judgment for the Catholic. That is not the sacrifice of Christ that can save to the uttermost those who are drawing near to God. This verse teaches a very powerful thing and it's that if you are in Christ, Christ is able to save and he does save to the uttermost That is the sacrifice of Christ. It is a sacrifice that perfects those for whom it is made. If I am in Christ, there is no condemnation. If I sin in Christ, there is an obligation to repent. I am called to repent. And if I am truly in Christ, the Holy Spirit will produce in me the work in keeping in repentance. I will bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The only sin so great as to be unforgivable is to harden your heart against God, to flee God, to deny the Master who bought us. We'll see that as we continue. You'll hear me say that when I talk about the unforgivable sin. Because what the unforgivable sin is truly speaking to is the nature of the heart of the one committing it, less the action, but the heart. 26. Such indeed for us also was fitting a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, having been separated from sinners, and higher than the heavens having become whom not oh, whom not has every day need whom whom not has every day need as the high priest first for his own sins uh, to offer up sacrifice then for those of the people for this he did once for all himself scroll down have offer up so now we can actually look at that. The once for all. If ifap if ifapox if if Once, once for all. At once from epi hypox Hopox um hypox something something which means a word that only appears once. Uh, Hopox upon one occasion. So there. <laughs> it's, it's the one word that means once and for all. It's one word that means once. Eternally so. So he did this himself. Once forever. Offering up himself. He doesn't do it continually. He doesn't do it forever. He has once for all offered up himself. And this is the contrast between the Judaic priesthood and the priesthood of Christ. Where they had to offer many sacrifices, he offers one. And only one. Only ever one. It is not represented. It does not need to be represented because Christ is eternally at the right hand of the Father, the Lamb, standing as though slain. It is an eternal reality. I'm not representing the buying of my clothes when I put them on in the morning after taking them off. I'm simply with my clothes. 28. The law for men appoints as high priests, having weakness, the word, however, of the oath, which is after the law, a son to the age, having been perfected, the sum now of things being spoken, such we have a priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens." That's actually where we're going to leave it. The um, summary now of the things being spoken is such that we have a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Jesus Christ is the lamb standing as if slain before God. Before the Father, the once-and-forever sacrifice. When you sin, when you repent of sin, you're not re-sacrificing Christ. You're repenting as Christ directed. You're bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. You're not making yourself again right with God. You're declared right with God already. We have peace with God. We have shalom with God. The working out, however, of our walk with God. See, what I just spoke of was the eternal reality the believer has, but the temporal reality is walking out our faith, running the race. And that is where the work of repentance comes. That is where the respond to the obligation of repentance is found in our walking out of our faith and not the eternal reality of how our faith is, of, of our relation with God. Repentance is indeed a tenet of the gospel. It is not what saves us. It is an evidence that we are saved. And we'll pick up with eight verse one next week. And now we close this segment and go on to our next. Alrighty, over on my TikTok at Stephen the Stowell, all one word. That's Stephen with a V. I hope you know the definite article the S T O W E L L. Um, same as my Instagram handle, by the way. Um, I asked y'all to ask me questions that I could answer here. I'm gonna start with the one that was the very first to roll in. From one, Richard D. Baptized Me. If Jesus God, why did he poop? Ah. (laughs) I have a... Stunning, stunning, shocking, maybe even, answer for this. Um, Let us turn to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Your attitude should be the same uh, as that of Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, who, being in the very morphe form or nature of God, being in very morphe, very form, God, very nature, God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very morphe of a servant, being made in human likeness. So having the very nature of God, being as to his very being, (laughs) God, he did not consider that something to hold on to or be grasped, but instead emptied himself. My understanding is the language there is the same that you that a, would be used of a centurion who doffs his armor, lays aside his armor. He's still a centurion. God is still God. Christ is still God. But... He made himself nothing in that. He took on the very morphe of a servant. He took on a second nature. That of humanity. A human. And he was made in the likeness of a human. S- the the Sarks, genetide. The the sarx genetide. The... Uh, the, the word became flesh John 3:14 uh, John 114 sorry and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself Christ was tr- Christ is truly God and he is truly man this is the hypostatic union. Even though he is as to his very nature God, he has also added on to his very nature that of man. God and man. He is the God-man. He is truly God in that he does not require sustenance, in that he does not require to use the restroom. But he is truly man in that he his body partook of nourishment, and because he partook of nourishment, he also partook of disposing of the waste that came from that nourishment so that he could be truly man and be the true servant, Yisrael, before God. Just as though he was without sin as to his being God and without capability of being tempted, As to his being God, he was tempted when he went out into the wilderness, according to the flesh, for he was hungry. And that is how, if Jesus God, how poop? Doesn't seem like, okay, there's one more question, but it's a doozy. How about you, uh, Isaiah Lowry says, how about you touch on sola scriptura? and how we handle canon issues in light of Sola Scriptura. Indeed. So why hold the Sola Scriptura? Well, 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is God-breathed. It is the very Word of God, and it's actually the only thing that is defined uh, in the Christian faith as the Word of God. Um... Christ refers to the Old Testament as the very words of God. In the Old Testament, the people referred to the writings of the Old Testament as the very word of God. Um, Now, a clarification that needs to be made by any Catholic or any person who's going to argue against Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura is not me and my Bible under a tree with a white-out pen for everything I don't like. Sola Scriptura is me acknowledging that because Scripture is Thea Neustas and that anything outside of that in tradition is not called such, then Scripture is the only place I have recorded the Word of God, like, in its totality, like, this is the Theonustas. Give me one word of Christ or any apostle. Give me any revelation of God from outside the Bible. Oh, but what about the Marian visions? Well, there's question there, and is that dogmatically defined? The scriptures are where the words of God, of Christ, of his followers are definitively de fide present so la scriptura is the teaching that because of this it is and because it is, scripture is as to its nature um theanustas. it therefore has certain attributes as god god is god god is eternal um, and Isaiah testifies, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. And Christ said um, th- the similar sentiment, of his, and he said, but my words will never pass away. Uh, so, Scripture, once revealed, is eternally preserved. The Bible is inerrant because God is without error. God is inerrant. Scripture, too, is inerrant. Um, And if it is inerrant, it is therefore infallible, just as God is infallible. Is God the author of confusion? Does God lie? No? Okay. So if Scripture is theanoustos, if it is spoken by God, if it is breathed out by God, at least as to it spiritually, then it, too, is infallible and inerrant, and without contradiction. If it is infallible, then because everything else we have regarding Christian faith and living is written without direct inspiration, by fallible men, then any rule of faith outside of Scripture is by default fallible, subject to fallibility, and is not inerrant. That doesn't mean it is in error, and that doesn't mean it is false. What that means is that it does not have that same nature of Scripture. Scripture is our only, or sole, infallible rule of faith. We do not believe in sola scriptura sans didache. That would be scripture alone, no tradition, without tradition. We can accept tradition as Protestants, but we must judge all things by that which is the infallible rule of faith. And I do this with any teacher of the word of God, any expositor. If what they have to say stands by the testimony of scripture, I can accept it. And where they differ, I must hold to the revealed word. So what I'm trying to disabuse is the common misconception that the sola in sola scriptura is applying to rule of faith and not to infallible. It's implying to it's applying to the infallible part of that statement. And also, the one who says they have no tradition is the one who is a slave to their tradition. We must then explain how we rightly handle the Word of God. Uh, (laughs) And tradition does play a role in that. It doesn't play an infallible role in that, but it does play a role in that. The key way to achieve sound biblical exegesis, and not eisegesis, exegesis, From, you know, X, from, uh, versus ice, into. So to read out of the text, to exegete a passage, you need context. Context, (laughs) and this one is a doozy, context. What are the surrounding verses? What is the point of the passage? What is the point of the book? What is the genre of the book? What is the audience? Who are the audience? What is the cultural comprehension of the audience that they would be understanding these words by? And beyond those things even, and alongside those things even, if your understanding of a passage puts that scripture at odds with another passage, you are interpreting one of those two passages incorrectly. These are simply the logical checks and balances that the sound Protestant has in mind when they are reading scripture. And I would argue the Catholic would have to agree that these are sound and logical ways of handling the word of god even though even though they believe they should believe epistemologically that there is no way for the individual to understand the word of god but the best part is is that i am not on the hook for every single passage of the bible to have to render a meaning by my own which i would argue i'm not rendering a meaning by my own anyways i'm actually just letting scripture speak for herself However, there are many places where the author or the, or the person being recorded in the passage, uh, in narratives, exegete themselves, exegete their own usage. And what a blessing. I don't have to look at all of the parables and go, what does this mean? Jesus explains what he means by the parables, and I don't go beyond what he makes application with. I don't go beyond the moral of the story. I don't read into a parable that which is not the point. So that was the important epistemological uh, how we can handle sola scriptura side of it. The next part of the question is, how can we handle the canon issues in light of sola scriptura? Well, I would ask, first and foremost, is it scripture because it's canon or is it canon because it's scripture and the catholics who i've raised this question to have agreed that it's the first that it is considered scripture because it is canon whereas i say no it's considered canon because it is scripture god has infallibly has an infallible canon that he is revealed to fallible people. We do not determine what the canon is. We do not determine what is Scripture by setting the canon. We set the canon by what is Scripture. Who determines Scripture? Well, the Torah is where the revelation of God began. Just as the very first thing I wrote was the start of the canon body of works of Stephen Stowell, so uh, the Torah is the start of the canon body of revelation from Yahweh, Elohim. And in the Torah, God actually gives a precedent for how we can determine whether new revelation is from God or not. Let's run through that. Deuteronomy 13. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder... And if a sign or wonder of which he has spoken takes place, and he says, Let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of the prophet or dreamer. Yahweh, your God, is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. It is him you must revere, keep his commands and obey him, serve him and hold fast to him. That prophet or dreamer must be put to death, because he preached rebellion Against Yahweh your God, who brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. He has tried to turn you from the way of Yahweh your God, from the way Yahweh your God commanded you to follow. You must purge evil from among you. So even if Muhammad comes along, or Joseph Smith comes along, or someone from the NAR comes along, and they proclaim to you things, or they even do miraculous signs and their prophecies come to pass, even if even if they have wonders and signs and miracles, if they're preaching a different God, do not listen. That is not from God. So when Muhammad comes along, even if he makes prophecy that comes true, um, still he preached Allah and not Yahweh. Allah who is a father to none whose Mashiach, the Christ did not die on the cross as prophesied in the Torah as fulfilled in the New Testament who did not who, who is a yeah who is a father to none um, a, a god who does not demand sacrifice that is a different god one we have not known And when Joseph Smith comes along and does what he does and proclaims, we have imagined and supposed that God has been God from all of eternity, but I will refute that and take away the veil. But when we compare that to scripture and we see Psalm 90 verse 2, the last clause from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. We see that Joseph Smith is saying, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them. And we must deny the revelation. So when the God being preached to you is contradictory to the one that has been revealed to you already, deny it. That is not God. Because God has sufficiently revealed his consistent way. Have we learned more about him? Yes. But has it remained consistent with him? I would stand on that. In this, we actually see that Scripture is guardian over new... Previous revelation is guardian over new revelation, and not vice versa, as the Muslims claim. So it starts with the Torah, and the Torah gives us the precedent for how we know what is Theanustas coming up next. We see more definition of a prophet of God in... Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 18 uh, 17 Yahweh said to me what they say is good I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and I will tell and he will tell them everything I command him. All right just right there we already have some expectations being laid out. I will raise up for them a prophet like you. So a prophet like Moses, he'll define that afterward. From among their brothers. Now in Deuteronomy, this phrase has been utilized already multiple times with the context of referring to fellow Israelites. Because they're brothers. They're brothers as sons of the Most High. So, the prophet like Moses is an Israelite. And we'll see this in the following passage. So, precedence for new revelation. It's coming from an Israelite. Um, And Yahweh is putting his very word in their mouth. Um, He will preach everything he has commanded. So Jesus fits this. Jesus is an Israelite. Jesus had the very word of God in his mouth. Uh, Being God, and of course also in his declaration, I say nothing but what the Father has given me to say, and I may be severely paraphrasing that, um, and he will tell them everything I command them, I pass on to you, <laughs> you know. Um, if anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I will call him into account. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded him to say, Or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods must be put to death, so we know it's not from God if they're preaching in the name of another god. Now you may say to yourselves, 21, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by Yahweh? If what the prophet proclaims in the name of Yahweh does not take place or come true, should be nor come true, that is a message Yahweh has not spoken the prophet has spoken presumptuously, do not be afraid of him. So if there is any prophecy, just one little prophecy, that they get wrong, they are not a prophet of Yahweh. So when Muhammad comes along, and I wish I could give you the proper thing, but I only partly remember it. So he basically prophesied that of these certain prophets, uh, of these certain worshippers, pagan, uh, when they danced around. Their idol, Their butts would shake. You can stop laughing now. The problem is that prophecy could not come to pass because the Muslims overtook the place where that prophecy was supposed to occur. And realistically, there's probably some other things we could find. But there's just one prophecy that did not come to pass. False prophet not speaking for God. Joseph Smith prophesied uh, that a temple would be built in Missouri uh, within his generation. Can you name a single person who was alive in that day? Who, who, can you name a single person who is still alive who was alive in that generation of Joseph Smith? Okay, then he is a false prophet because there is still no temple there or at the least it was not built within that generation. So if your scripture is offering up prophecy that has clearly passed without being fulfilled, we know that that is not from God. Thankfully, every prophecy of scripture has or will come to pass. And I would ask if there's prophecy in the deuterocanon and apocrypha and if there is and if it has not come to pass, that is how we know it is not from God if even one thing Slipped. Now we get affirmation of the prophet-like Moses' characteristics that we should expect from a true prophet of Yahweh uh, in Deuteronomy 34, 10 onward through 12. Since then, so this is after Moses died, since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses. So the expectation is that they would rise in Israel, and they would be like Moses in that whom Yahweh knew face-to-face. So whoever this prophet is, they have intimate relationship with God. They're not getting their message from another party, such as Muhammad with Jibreel, or Smith with Moroni. Who did all those miraculous signs and wonders? So they're going to have miraculous signs and wonders. In the... Yahweh sent him to do in Egypt, to the Pharaoh and to all of his officials, for no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of Israel. So we know it's revelation because it comes with these things. So we're expecting consistency and continuity, and we're expecting accuracy When prophecy comes. Actually, more than accuracy, immaculate prophecy. Prophecy that, hands down, does not fall short. Now, we also find scripture to be inerrant. It is without error, it is without contradiction. I actually have an Apocrypha. I have a Septuagint with Apocrypha. Let me read something for you. Judith, verse... Chapter 1, verse 1. In the twelfth year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, who reigned in Nineveh. Oh, it's not in Nineveh. It's over Nineveh. No. No. I'm sorry. Nebuchadnezzar. Hos. Hibasolosen. Has. Rion. Ain Nineveh. Ain Ninoa in Arke Ain Hologos Ain Arke Ain Hologos Ain Ninoa In, in... in Arke In Beginning Ain Ninoa In Nineva Judith teaches that Nebuchadnezzar was the ruler of Nineveh. Additionally, in verse 11, it calls Nebuchadnezzar king of the Assyrians, whereas actually he was king of the Babylonians. And in chapter 2, it would seem to teach that Nebuchadnezzar's army Not only did Nebuchadnezzar reign from Nineveh, but his army attacked the region of Mesopotamia. That would be the Empire of Babylon. This is a grave historical inaccuracy. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, the ruler of Babylon. By virtue of being ruler of the Mesopotamia, he would probably also have reign over Nineveh. But that is not what Judith taught. Judith taught something that is patently, historically inaccurate. And comical. And there's no sign of textual variation to save. There's no similarity between Babylon and Nineveh in the Greek to justify... Textual variation, there's no sign of mistake. There is only sign of there there is no sign of of textual variation of scribal mistake. There is only sign of grave historical inaccuracy. And even in the most difficult of biblical textual variation, there is not historical inaccuracy. There is evidence of textual variation that explains the difficulty in the text. It is always reconcilable. It is always understandable. This is not understandable. This is not reconcilable. This is not from God. This is a man, this is the hand of man trying their best, but getting it wrong. And you may ask, to what end? I'd say, I don't know, to what end did most apocryphal works be, uh, have their... <sighs> to what end were most apocryphal works written? It's hard to say. I I believe that there is a perfectly uh sola scriptura based hermeneutical way to actually, if we wanted to be sticks in the mud about it, divine the canon uh from scripture alone. I think that is a very hard, arduous, drawn out process that I am I've want to make, but I'm not prepared to make. Um. But also, I can rely on us having had it right from day one. Because the canon is, actually, uh, as far as the 66 are concerned, the 2,000-year-old attested canon. Have people accepted more? Yes. But those who were most versed in the original languages denied those extra works. I believe... We have fallibly defined the infallible canon of God. I believe history is on my side. I believe the fathers are on my side uh, when they are able to make proper decision. I find the evidence to speak for itself. that the 66, the canon of 66 books, is Theanostas. that it is the pasagrafe. That is Theonistos. I don't need a table of contents. I need the word of God that testifies to itself. Oh, and that brings us to the end of today's episode, Theophilus. Ah, oh, What a day. Uh, what a day. I'd like to thank everyone who... Uh, responded to the Q&A, and if you want to ask me questions, uh, feel free to pop on to my TikTok and either DM me, or if you really can't wait till the Friday Q&A video, uh, feel free to comment noting that you are asking for a Most Excellent Theophilus Q&A segment. This can be anything, questions about myself, uh, about theology, about what I'm doing. Ask away, please. This goes so much better when I actually have questions to run that segment. But now I'm afraid it is time to go. Matthew 5, 3 through 12. Jesus spake these things. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of Christ. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Theophilus, go in the peace and love and hope of Jesus Christ of our great Lord and Savior the one who is able to save to the uppermost those who draw near through him to God the one who makes intercession the one who made his once and for all sacrifice the lamb standing as if slain go in that peace in the shalom And the agape of that.